lead usurpers or thieves, they may, in some cases, get entire possession of the holes, but very often they live very sociably with the prairie dogs, and may, for all we know, pay for their lodgings by bringing in grain and seeds, along with the worms and insects which they reserve for their own table. Anyone who does not possess a habitation of his own, must occasionally expect to be thrown among strange companions, and this very often happens to the burrowing owl. Travelers tell us that not only do the prairie dogs and owls live together in these burrows, but that great rattlesnakes sometimes take up their residence there and all three families seeming to live together in peace and unity. I think that it is probable, however, that the little dogs and owls are not at all pleased with the company of the snakes. A prairie dog will not eat an owl, and without the dog is very young indeed. An owl will not eat him, but a great snake would just as soon swallow either of them as not, if he happened to be hungry, which fortunately is not often the case, for a good meal lasts a snake a long time. But the owls and the prairie dogs had no way of ridding themselves of their unwelcome roommates, and, like human beings, they are obliged to patiently endure the ills they cannot banish. Perhaps, like human beings again, they become so accustomed to these ills that they forget how disagreeable they are. There is a bird and it is a flamingo which builds a nest which looks to me as if it must be very unpleasant to sit upon, and yet it suits the bird very well. In fact, on any other kind of a nest, the flamingo might not know what to do with its legs. It would appear as if there had been a waste of material in making such a large high nest, when only two or three moderate-sized eggs are placed in the slight depression at the top, but, when we consider that the flamingo uses this tall affair as a seat, as well as a nest, we can easily understand that flamingos, like most other birds, understand how to adapt their nests to their own convenience and peculiarities, sitting astread on one of these tall nests, which look something like peach baskets turned upside down with her head stuck as far under her wing as she can get it, the flamingo dozes away, during the long sultry hours of day, as comfortably and happily as if she was a little wren snugly curled up inside of its cozy nest, it is not mere situation which makes us happy, some people enjoy life in cottages, others in palaces, and some birds sit in a pile of hard sticks and think themselves quite as cozy as those which repose upon the softest down. It is almost impossible to comprehend the different fancies of birds in regard to their nests. For instance, why should any bird want to sail about in its nest? Yet there is one called the little greed which builds a watertight nest, in which she lays her eggs, and, while she is hatching them, she paddles herself around on the water. It seems to me that these birds must have a very pleasant time during the setting season, to start out some fine morning, after it has had its breakfast of bugs and things to gently push its nest from shore, to jump on board, to sit down comfortably on the eggs, and sticking out its webfoot legs on each side, to paddle away among the water lilies and the beautiful green rushes, in company with other little grebes, all uniting business and pleasure in the same way, must be, indeed, quite charming to an appreciative duck, if it were to happen to storm, however, when the grebe was at a distance from shore, her little craft might be upset and her cargo of eggs go to the bottom, but I expect the grebes are very good sailors, and no one to look for bad weather, a nest full of young grebes just hatched, with the mother swimming behind, pushing them along with her beak, or towing them by the loose end of a twig, must be a very singular and interesting sight, an ostrich has very different views in regard to a nest from a little grebe, instead of wishing to take its nest about with it, wherever it goes, the ostrich does not care for a great deal of nest work, 
If Ireland however, a bird of more domestic habits than some writers would have us believe, for although it does cover up its eggs in the sand, and then let the sun help hatch them, it is not altogether inattentive to its nest. The ostrich makes a large nest in the sand, where, it is said, the eggs of several families are deposited. These eggs are very carefully arranged in the great hole or basin that has been formed in the soft sand, and, during the daytime, they are often covered up and left to be gently heated by the rays of the sun, but the ostrich sits upon her nest at night, and in many cases the male bird has been known to sit upon the eggs all day. An ostrich nest is a sort of a wholesale establishment. There are not only a great many eggs in the nest, but dozens of them are often found lying about on the sand around it. This apparent waste is explained by some naturalists by the statement that these scattered eggs are intended for the food of the young ones when they are hatched. This may be true, but in that case young ostriches cannot be very particular about the flavor of the eggs they eat. A few days in the hot sun of the desert would be very likely to make eggs of any kind taste rather strongly. But ostrich eggs are so large, and their shells are so thick, that they may keep better than the eggs to which we are accustomed, from nests which are built flat on the ground. Let us now go to some that are placed as high from the earth as their builders can get them. The nests of the storks are of this kind. A pair of storks will select, as a site for their nest, a lofty place among the rocks, the top of some old ruins, or, when domesticated, as they often are, the top of a chimney. But when there are a number of storks living together in a community, they very often settle in a grove of tall trees and build their nests on the highest branches. In these they lay their eggs and hatch out their young ones. Soon after the time when these young storks are able to fly, the whole community generally starts off on its winter pilgrimage to warm countries, but the old storks always return in the spring to the same nest that they left, while the young ones, if they choose to join that community at all, must make nests for themselves. Although these nests are nothing but rude structures of sticks and twigs, made apparently in the roughest manner, each pair of storks evidently thinks that there is no home like its own. The stork is a very kind parent, and island in fact, more careful of the welfare of its young than most birds, but it never goes to the length of surrendering its homestead to its children. The young storks will be carefully nurtured and reared by their parents, when they grow old enough they will be taught to fly, and encouraged in the most earnest way to strengthen and develop their wings by exercise, and, in the annual expedition to the south. They are not left to themselves, but are conducted to the happy lands where all good storks spend their winters. But the young storks cannot have everything. If they wish to live in the nest in which they were born, they must wait until their parents are dead. It may be that we have now seen enough of birds' nests, and so I will not show you any more. The next nest which we will examine, but I thought you were not going to show us any more birds' nests. You will say, that is true. I did say so. And this next one is not a bird's nest but a fish's nest. It is probably that very few of you, if any, ever saw a fish's nest, but there certainly are such things. The fish which builds them is called the stickleback. It is a little fish, but it knows how to make a good nest. The male stickleback is the builder, and when he thinks of making a nest he commences by burrowing a hole in the mud at the bottom of the stream where he lives, when with his nose and body he has made this hole large enough. He collects bits of grass, roots and weeds, and builds his nest over this hole, which seems to be dug for the purpose of giving security to the structure. The grass and other materials are fastened to the mud and earth by means of a sticky substance, which exudes from the body of the fish, and every part of the nest is stuck together and interlaced so that it will not be disturbed by the currents. 
There are generally two openings to this nest, which is something like a lady's muff. Although, of course, it is by no means so smooth and regular, the fish can generally stick its head out of one end, and its tail out of the other. When the eggs have been laid in the nest, and the young sticklebacks have been born, the male fish is said to be very strict and particular in the government of his children. For some time while they are yet very small and the father himself is a very little fellow he makes them stay in the nest, and if any of them come swimming out, he drives them back again, and forces them to stay at home until they are of a proper age to swim about by themselves. We have now seen quite a variety of nests, and I think that we may come to this conclusion about their builders, the bird or other creature which can carefully select the materials for the home of its young can decide what is most suitable for the rough outside and what will be soft and nice for the inner lining, and can choose a position for its nest where the peculiar wants and habits of its little ones can be best provided for, must certainly be credited with a degree of intelligence which is something more than what is generally suggested by the term instinct, the boomerang. Civilized folks are superior in so very many respects to their barbarous brethren that it is well, when we discover anything which a savage can do better than we can to make a note of it, and give the subject some attention, and it is certain that there are savages who can surpass us in one particular they can make and throw boomerangs, it is very possible that an American mechanic could imitate an Australian boomerang, so that few persons could tell the difference, but I do not believe that boomerang would work properly, either in the quality of the wood, or in the seasoning, or in some particular which we would not be apt to notice, it would, in all probability, differ very much from the weapon carved out by the savage, if the American mechanic was to throw his boomerang away from him, I think it would stay away, there is no reason to believe that it would ever come back, and yet there is nothing at all wonderful in the appearance of the real boomerang, it is simply a bent club, about two feet long, smooth on one side and slightly hollowed out on the other, no one would imagine, merely from looking at it, that it could behave in any way differently from any other piece of stick of its size and weight, but it does behave differently, at least when an Australian savage throws it. I had never heard of an American or European who was able to make the boomerang perform the tricks for which it has become famous. Throwing this weapon is like piano playing, you have to be brought up to it in order to do it well. In the hands of the natives of Australia, however, the boomerang performs most wonderful feats. Sometimes the savage takes hold of it by one end, and gives it a sort of careless jerk, so that it falls on the ground at a short distance from him. As soon as it strikes the earth it bounds up into the air, turns, twists, and pitches about in every direction, knocking with great force against everything in its way. It is said that when it bounds in this way into the midst of a flock of birds, it kills and wounds great numbers of them. At other times the boomerang thrower will hurl his weapon at an object at a great distance and when it has struck the mark it will turn and fall at the feet of its owner, turning and twisting on its swift and crooked way. This little engraving shows how the boomerang will go around a tree and return again to the thrower. The twisted line indicates its course. Most astonishing stories are told of the skill with which the Australians use this weapon. They will aim at birds or small animals that are hidden behind trees and rocks, and the boomerang will go around the trees and rocks and kill the game. They are the only people who can with any certainty shoot around a corner. Not only do they throw the boomerang with unerring accuracy, but with tremendous force, and when it hits a man on the head, giving him two or three terrible raps as it twists about him, it is very apt to kill him. To ward off these dangerous blows, the natives generally carry shields when they go out to fight, 
sometimes an Australian throws two boomerangs at once, one with his right hand and one with his left, and then the unfortunate man that he aims at has a hard time of it. Many persons have endeavored to explain the peculiar turning and twisting properties of the boomerang, but they have not been entirely successful, for so much depends not only on the form of the weapon, but on the skill of the thrower, but it is known that the form of the boomerang, and the fact that one of its limbs is longer and heavier than the other, gives its center of gravity a very peculiar situation, and when the weapon is thrown by one end, it has naturally a tendency to rotate and the manner of this rotation is determined by the peculiar impetus given it by the hand of the man who throws it. It is well that we are able to explain the boomerang a little, for that is all we can do with it. The savage cannot explain it at all, but he can use it. But, after all, I do not know that a boomerang would be of much service to us even if we could use it. There is only one thing that I can now think of that it would be good for. It would be a splendid to knock down chestnuts with. Just think of a boomerang going twirling into a chestnut tree, twisting, turning, banging, and cracking on every side, knocking down the chestnuts in a perfect shower, and then coming gently back into your hand, all ready for another throw. It would be well worthwhile to go out chestnutting, if we had a boomerang to do the work for us. Now our ramblings must come to an end. We cannot walk about the world forever, you know, no matter how pleasant it may be and I wish I was quite sure that you had all found these wanderings pleasant. As for me, there were some things that I did not like so well as others, and I suppose that that was the case with all of you, but it could not be helped. In this world some things will be better than others. Do what we may. One of these days, perhaps, we may ramble about again. Until then, goodbye. The end.